0: The following podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. We advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our research, to listen to our podcasts, and to watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.
1: Welcome to Economics Applied, Episode 2, in which we continue our discussion of a global commonwealth, if you can keep it. This episode features a conversation with Robert Steger on eight December 2019. Thanks a lot, Steve. Happy to be here. So, In our conversation with Condi Rice, uh, she describes the global commonwealth, that rose after World War II, and explains how it fostered a a shared prosperity among participating countries. And in this regard, we'd we'd love to hear your perspective on the particular roles of the GATT and the WTO, and perhaps in giving us your thoughts you could define the most favored nation principle and the GATT, WTO concept of reciprocity as well. And tell us what's the logic behind each and, and perhaps uh, your thoughts about how they have promoted or, or hurt prosperity. Well, sure. Um, I think
2: the, uh, uh, the role of the GATT and the WTO uh, in fostering free of trade uh, is certainly important and, uh, and needs to be understood uh, and not taken for granted, uh, especially during the uh, current era. Um, That said, I think it's important in starting out to to, uh, uh, remember that the economic gains from free trade uh, should be kept uh, in perspective and uh, appropriately weighed against the gains from achieving other goals uh... whose attainment might require some sacrifice of those gains or another way to put it is that um the gains from free trade that uh... that economists have uh... have been able to quantify and estimate uh... substantial but not so great that they would um, uh... suggest no deviation from free trade principles uh... for uh... uh... for any other kind of uh... goals that we might be uh... Uh, interested in achieving, including um, climate uh, possibly, uh, including uh, distributional concerns, et cetera. Uh, and I think it's important to keep that in mind because um, that is actually something that the design of the GATT uh, is perfectly consistent with, uh, and that's a point that is, uh, I think, often lost in, in popular uh, discussion. So, so what are the, uh, uh, the, the rules of this uh, rules-based uh, trading system? And you, uh, Steve, have, have uh, properly identified the two uh, key pillars, uh, the Most Favored Nation Principle, uh, or MFN, and uh, the Reciprocity uh, Principle. And uh, the Most Favored Nation Principle is a non-discrimination uh, principle for tariffs. And uh, if I am uh, importing steel from, from both you, Steve, and you, Kevin, uh the MFN principle says that I have to apply the same tariff to imported steel from Steve as I do to imported steel from Kevin. So that's the simple uh basics of the of the MFN principle. And together with national treatment, uh which applies to behind the border policies, uh and says that once Steve and Kevin's steel uh, has passed through my customs and is in my domestic market, I have to treat that steel identically to the way I treat steel that is produced in Pennsylvania uh, in terms of taxes, regulatory treatment, and other domestic policies. Well, those two principles, those two policies, the MFN and national treatment, uh, form the, uh, the basis of the GATT-WTO pillar of non-discriminatory treatment for foreign exporters. And uh, when GATT was created, all member countries uh, committed to concentrating their protective border policies into MFN tariffs. And the idea was these are transparent uh, and relatively easily uh, subject to negotiation policies. And uh, uh, and so they were a good uh, uh, protective tool for countries, if they were going to have protection, uh, to use. And then the behind the border policies were left largely unconstrained for GATT members beyond the national treatment commitment that you wouldn't uh, discriminate against uh, imported goods once they were within your market uh, with behind the border measures. And initially tariffs were left uh, essentially unconstrained beyond the MFN commitment. And that's where reciprocity comes in because it was anticipated that countries would offer tariff cuts uh, to their trading partners uh, in negotiations um, where, uh, and they would offer these in exchange for reciprocal offers of tariff cuts from their trading partners. And that notion of, of reciprocity, or quote unquote reciprocal uh, offers from their trading partners, uh, was expected to conform to a notion of, of balance. And that balance is essentially as follows uh, My tariff cut uh, offers to you, Steve. Uh, I would expect that to induce an increase in the volume of, volume of your exports uh, into my market. And uh, I would expect you to give me tariff cuts uh, that would induce uh, an equivalent increase in the volume of my exports into your markets. And that was the essential balance of reciprocity that uh, GATT uh, and now the WTO is built around. And those reciprocal market access offers uh, then formed the core, of what became eight multilateral rounds of GATT negotiations, which started in 1947 with the creation of GATT and culminated in 1995 uh, with the creation of the WTO. That was the last uh, uh,
1: successful
2: GATT round, the Uruguay round, created the WTO, and in uh, 2001, the, uh, the Doha round of the WTO was inaugurated, but it has still uh, not, uh, not completed. But those, uh, those rounds of negotiations led to impressive uh, and sustained reductions in tariffs uh, among negotiating countries that had uh, never before been achieved in the history of the world. Uh, and, uh, and those can easily be taken for granted today, or at least uh, up until a few years ago, uh, because they had already uh, been achieved, and, um, and many tariffs, especially in industrialized countries, were, were already quite low. Uh, it's well, important... Uh, I was just going to mention it's important, uh, though, to to uh, realize that as as uh, Condi mentioned in her uh, earlier uh, in her, her earlier segment, um, these uh, these negotiations were built on an idea that these uh, that these offers would be mutually beneficial, as judged by the member governments. And in that sense, uh, GAD is a member-driven uh, organization, and it was really about getting countries to opt in. Uh, for their mutual benefit, as, uh, as in your conversation with Condi. I, I believe that is absolutely true for the, for the GAT. It was really uh, designed in that way. And the final thing I'd mention is that it's, it's very important to realize that the current notion of reciprocity that President Trump and his Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross are, uh, are, are speaking of and demanding from other countries is a very different notion of reciprocity than is built in the, uh, in the GATT.
0: So, can I ask that you a little bit, just yeah, in yeah. terms of what's the big difference, and what would you say? What, are they both reciprocity, and they just differ in the notion of reciprocity, or what's the what's the key? Difference yeah.
2: There? Yes, uh, uh, important uh, important clarifying question. So uh, the key difference in, in the uh, in a in a nutshell is that uh, as uh, Jagdish Bhagwati uh, coined a phrase uh, for the GAT. Uh, GAT is built on first difference reciprocity. It is reciprocity of changes in negotiated uh, market access commitments or tariffs uh, that doesn't necessarily t- lead to reciprocity or equality in the levels of uh, market access and tariffs across countries. Uh, what President Trump and uh, Commerce Secretary uh, Ross are uh, suggesting. Is that countries really should have, uh, or the U.S. should be demanding reciprocity in the levels of tariffs and the levels of market access across countries, uh, and that includes uh, uh, developing countries uh, uh, such as uh, China and uh, presumably Brazil and India and South Africa, as well as your uh, 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 industrialized countries such as uh, as the European Union and the uh, in the case of the auto uh, tariffs uh, disputes that are. are uh, uh, ongoing right now, and uh, and that's a big difference um, because uh, as you know, what GATT uh, was built on was the idea that countries have different needs uh, for tariffs, uh, both uh, broadly if they're at different levels of uh, development, but also even sectorally, if different countries have different needs uh, in, in particular sectors, and that there is no real presumption that countries would necessarily uh end up with the same tariffs across goods across countries the idea was simply that the negotiations would be balanced in this uh in this first difference reciprocal way and that through that balanced negotiation all countries uh, could could mutually benefit
1: so one one problem i guess that that has created is that countries that started out with low levels of tariffs um, will, under this first difference principle of reciprocity, always have lower levels of tariffs. Um, And another issue, I guess you've written about this, is is what you call the latecomer problem, that countries that joined the WTO late in the game, like China, um, were perhaps starting at a higher tariff level than countries that already negotiated down their tariff levels under this first difference principle of reciprocity. Do you, do you see these as, as big, uh, I guess, structural problems in the way that WTO organizes or, or operates, or these just minor, minor matters?
2: Yes, I, uh, I actually think the uh, uh, these issues are uh, are, are important uh, and and are, are uh, creating uh, uh, significant hurdles for uh, the WTO currently. And uh, and then I think a follow-up, uh, you know, question is: Are they hurdles that are, uh, in some sense, uh, threatening, uh, you know, uh, uh, causing an existential threat to the logic of uh, of the WTO uh, currently? And on that latter question, I uh, I actually think that that they are not causing an existential threat; that there are uh, ways of uh, of dealing with it. But uh, before we before we get to that, I think uh, you've hit on uh, an important. Uh, element and that is um uh, uh the uh, the notion of uh, first difference reciprocity uh and mfn um, might work, uh, might work well if uh, countries are all starting uh, possibly together in the same uh, negotiations, and maybe even at the same uh, level of tariffs. Although that was, uh, as I mentioned, never, uh, never expected, and never uh, required for the for the uh, uh, for the process to work. Um, but the uh, uh, the <clears throat> what I've called the latecomer problem. Uh, I think arose from a decision made early in the GATT era that developing countries uh, should be exempt from the expectations uh, that they offer reciprocal tariff cuts of their own. Uh, And that that became known as special and differential treatment in the GATT for developing countries. Uh, and so they were exempt from, uh, from, you know, the expectation they would offer uh, tariff cuts of their own in a reciprocal fashion. Uh, and, uh, and I think the, the latecomer problem arose from, from that decision combined with what I think is a, an interesting um, economic, from an economic perspective, an interesting misunderstanding of the basic source of economic benefits from GATT-sponsored uh, negotiated tariff liberalization. And uh, the stated expectation of special and differential treatment uh, was to allow developing countries to share in the gains from the reciprocal MFN tariff bargains that industrialized countries were expected to engage in. And yet uh, they wouldn't have to pay quote-unquote with their own reciprocal tariff cuts that was the hope that they would uh, they would simply benefit as uh, in some sense free riders on the mfn tariff cuts in the industrialized countries were expected to do in the forty in the in the late forties the fifties the sixties seventies etc. and uh, the problem with that from an economic perspective is that uh, the only way that developing countries could really expect to gain uh, is if the the uh, terms of trade that they faced, uh, that is the prices they faced in world markets for their exports relative to the prices they faced in world markets for their imports, uh, moved in their favor as a result of the tariff bargains being negotiated by industrialized countries. And the basic uh, rules of the WTO and the GATT, MSN, and reciprocity, uh uh implied that the the balance the countries were in, were achieving when they industrialized countries negotiated essentially minimized the changes in the in the broader terms of trade for the world and uh and that essentially uh ruled out the possibility that uh, that there would be free riders who were not also liberalizing and what that meant in the internal logic of the of the gains from liberalization under the under the GATT negotiations was that well where were the gains coming from then it wasn't coming from changes in the terms of trade when a country negotiated tariff cuts uh with with another industrialized country it was coming from the uh from from the elimination of uh, the domestic distortions that were uh that would otherwise exist with that country's higher tariffs so as that country lowered its own tariffs uh, the, uh, the terms of trade weren't necessarily changing very much, but what was changing was the internal prices and the distortions that otherwise were, uh, were existing in that country. So at the bottom line was <clears throat> that uh, under GATT negotiations and to a large degree the WTO, uh, what you get is essentially what you give. Uh, it's basically built that way, so the countries are, are uh, benefiting you know, only to the extent that they are also uh... also offering liberalization of their own uh... Because <laughs> of developing countries,
0: yeah. I mean, it's one thing that i mean it sounds like the whole presumption of this was that like you said it was all focused on terms of trade effects but also it, i guess implicitly therefore assumed that you know developing countries benefited from their high tariffs rather than lost from having high tariffs right i mean it, it yes it's sort of it's sort of a, a view of trade as a you know, in a, a kind of you know market power type of view of, of trade. Right. Somehow I'm going to alter the terms of trade in my favor, as opposed to no. Mostly, what I'm just going to do is distort my own markets and hurt my own consumers. But um, do you think that was a that that view has kind of pushed? push the results, at least from the point of view of the developing world, kind of not – they haven't gotten the benefits they might have otherwise gotten from uh, free or trade, I guess I would say. Um,
2: yeah. And I think that's a, uh, a very good way to put it, is that, uh, uh, is that I think the structure of the, uh, of the negotiations uh, really uh, focused on countries that were uh, imposing uh, international pecuniary externalities on other countries with their unilateral tariff choices and those pecuniary externalities are traveling through through markets through prices or through world prices in terms of trade effects and those uh, pecuniary externalities are not going to create inefficiencies unless the country imposing them has some market power and that's exactly uh the, I think the way to think of the logic of the uh of the early GATT years is it was a it was a forum where countries that had some market power in uh, in the sectors where they were uh, setting tariffs, uh, had done had set tariffs too high because they were not internalizing the negative externality that they were posing on their trading partners. And the gap was a negotiating forum where foreign exporters could come to the table and try to get uh, countries to internalize those externalities. And that was the that was the negotiation. And uh, and what uh what i think you're pointing to is that uh you know for developing countries that were small in most markets uh and of course when i say large and small that can that doesn't necessarily mean the whole world it can certainly mean in, can certainly mean regional uh you know size uh, and and there does uh, appear to be uh you know mounting evidence that economists have uh, have put forward that uh, many countries have some market power in at least some products and some countries have a lot of market power in most products uh, on the world market, and uh, to the extent that the developing countries in the 50s and 60s were small enough to not have much market power in many products, it probably made sense to uh, have them uh, be on the sidelines and not be nego- negotiating. And it just meant that they weren't going to get much out of the negotiations of others. But what I think the latecomer problem is is that, uh... fact, is that. Uh, developing countries over the last uh, 20 to 30 years have grown uh, markedly in size in the world economy. And, uh, and the BRICs uh, in particular, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, have become major uh, major players in the global economy and now probably have much to gain from, uh, from liberalizing their uh, tariffs relative to where they are. Uh, no matter what their underlying need for tariffs uh, might be because of those international inefficiencies that are likely associated with their, uh, with their market power. And that's, the, uh, that's a latecomer problem that I think is, uh, uh, is, is causing a problem in the, in the current uh, system. Uh, a good question is whether that's the key problem for, for the U.S.-China uh, uh, dispute. And I actually think it's a bit less of a problem for China than more generally uh, for uh, for the original uh, you know original uh, GAP members um, uh, who are developing countries such as India and Brazil and South Africa. Uh, China, you know, was an original member actually, uh, but then uh, left in 1949 with the communist uh, revolution, and then rejoined in 2001. And when it did join the WTO in 2001, uh, it did negotiate uh, fairly substantial tariff uh, cuts and other uh, commitments as part of its price uh, of admission to the WTO. So, in some sense, there was a there was at least a a, a, a period, uh, you know, an, a, a, an opportunity in 2001 for countries to uh, to ask China to. Uh, uh, to come in and uh, and and cut its own uh, tariffs, and uh, I think China gained quite a bit from that, and probably that stimulated quite a bit China's increasing uh, trade expansion in uh, in the in the following uh, two decades. Um, so I think actually the U.S.-China issues are, uh, are are subtly a little bit different than the late-comer problem, although they're they're related. Um, and what I see there, what I see the China uh, issues in, in, in regard to the U.S. are largely about uh, uh, expectations that, uh, that the U.S. had in 2001 when it negotiated with China about the market access implications of China's commitments. And uh, one, uh, I think it's reasonable to say that, uh, that the U.S. expectations that China would move toward a, a market economy uh, to, to the degree that the U.S. expected, uh, have not panned out, and those expectations of the reciprocal market access commitments that China was offering to the U.S. have have not panned out either. So I think there is an imbalance uh, between the U.S. and China that uh, you know that that uh, should be uh, should be dealt with. But I just uh, believe strongly that the the way to deal with it is through the. Uh, through the rules-based uh, WTO system, rather than uh, uh, the way the current administration is, uh, is is trying to handle it. But Bob, on that point, given that it's been a long time since China joined the WTO, I and mean, these concerns, um, which you seem to view as somewhat legitimate, about China's market access provision, haven't really been addressed. Do we need to change something uh, fundamental about the WTO? If that's the if that's the way to go, and if so, what what reform would you recommend for the WTO? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, a great uh, question, and uh, I I see um, I think there are two issues that are currently tied up in the U.S.-China dispute on uh, market access, as well as other issues. Uh, that are uh, that are that are broader and and quite complicated, and and some of those issues, of course, are are security related and and military related. Some of those issues are uh, technology um, uh, and technology transfer. But if we focus just on the uh, on the market access issues, which are kind of the traditional bread and butter of the of the of the uh, GATT and and the WTO, I. Uh, I think there are two two market access issues that have become conflated in the uh, uh, in the current dispute. one that is uh, principally between the u s. and China, and the other that is more uh, between the u s and uh, and a more broad membership of the uh, of the WTO. and the one that is between u s and China, I think is the is the question of did um uh, From the negotiations that the u s and China uh, engaged in in two thousand and one when China joined the WTO uh, did uh, did the, the balance of uh, reciprocity that both countries uh, expected in, uh, in uh, two thousand and one has been panned out and I think it's reasonable to say that uh, that um, the, uh, the the Chinese uh, uh, market access commitments that were made in 2001 had not led to the kind of uh, increase in market access for U.S. exporters that uh, was, could have been reasonably expected. And when that's the case, uh, there is a, a GAT, uh... WTO uh, path toward uh, dealing with exactly that contingency, because that was anticipated. That that might happen uh, in the in these negotiations. Back in when GATT was created and it was uh, renewed, that anticipation was renewed in the WTO uh, creation. And uh, and there's a path by which countries can uh, uh, can rebalance their negotiation their negotiated outcomes if if the balance that they expected does not uh, pan out. And I think that is. uh, Something that uh, that the U.S. and China uh, could be engaging through the WTO rules, although those rules are are somewhat difficult and and clearly you know could use some revamping, especially in a case as big as U.S.-China, where we've got uh, you know the two largest traders in the world uh, having this this issues. Uh, so I think there are some some. Uh, uh, some ways of, uh, of uh, revamping the rules of the WTO in this regard, but I think fundamentally the rules that are there are uh, are well-equipped to handle this issue. The second issue is, uh, is, is less about the balance of market access commitments that both countries made in 2001 and more about the, the depth of tariff cuts that the U.S. agreed to Uh, in 1995, which is the last multilateral negotiation uh, that the U.S. engaged in, the Uruguay Round of of GATT, which created the WTO. And I think it's fair to say that in 1995, when the U.S. made its commitments to its uh, existing tariff level, um, it was very difficult to anticipate the rise of the BRICS and the uh, the amount of uh, trade pressures. That would be uh, faced by the U.S. and other industrialized countries over the next uh, two decades, and uh, and that's a question of uh, of not not balance so much as depth. Uh, even if even if uh, if the U.S. had found that it was getting reciprocal export access into other countries uh, in the same way that it had you know given uh, access to its own market, there's still the question of can it handle the the trade pressures that it is allowing into its its markets. And this is where the um, the logic of of free trade is where it's really important to realize that the logic of free trade is not what the GATT bargain and the WTO uh, institution are built on. They are built on negotiations uh, to internalize these uh, negative externalities. And whether it leads you to free trade or just to freer trade, is uh, it's really up to each country and each country's uh, you know, tra- uh, decisions about how to trade off aggregate GDP uh, increases versus its distributional issues versus other uh, other uh, goals such as tariff revenue, even for developing countries with, with tariffs. And that's where uh, there's a second uh, route that the WTO and GATT before it has to allow countries to rethink their level of commitments, if they so choose. Uh, And it's a renegotiation route that is uh, very available to countries. And I think that is something that uh, the the U.S. could selectively decide to use, as well as other industrialized countries, if it felt that there were certain sectors where uh, it needs to have a, a higher level of protection in order to achieve its particular goals. And, of course, as economists, we know that tariffs are never the first best uh, instrument for achieving uh, any goal uh, other than possibly the optimal tariff argument, which is inefficient from a, from a world perspective. Uh, but it's also true that uh, we don't live in a first-best world, and essentially the GATT and WTO uh, baked that in and created an institution where uh, countries could, uh, could, could, you know, in reality rely on tariffs where they thought they needed them and this kind of flexibility uh, to renegotiate commitments in an orderly fashion is there in the uh, in the WTO and again the huge difference between doing it through WTO procedures and doing what I see as um, a, a power-based way of uh, changing tariff commitments that the current Trump administration is doing is uh, in the Trump administration it's a far more unilateral Approach that is using threatening, bargaining, tariffs in order to uh, to get other countries to do what the U.S. wants. It's not an opt in. Uh, it's not an opt in procedure at all. It's a. Uh, it's a very much a forceful procedure that is uh, completely against the rule based system that uh, the WTO is is, is really the. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, I the mean, Bob, and can I try well, to just, to put this in a way and see if you agree with this. That, yeah. Um, Kandi talked a lot about uh, global commonwealth, which is, I think, in its essence, that you know we there are mutual gains to cooperation across the world. If we can cooperate, we can achieve a better outcome than we do we have if we don't kind of recognize this interdependence and you know adopt a commonwealth type approach. And I think that word means something. That you know, it's, it's about you know, you know, a commonwealth where there, there's a joint gain here. Now, it seems to me what you're saying is what, there's a fundamental thing in economics, which is even if we don't want to go to free trade, in general, cooperation across countries can generate mutual gains by moving in the direction of freer trade since unilateral incentives generally leave some gains to trade on the table. That is, if I just do things with my own in a non-cooperative way, I'm going to start from a situation where there's mutual gains to moving toward freer trade, even if not to free trade. And, and GATT and WTO kind of recognize that as kind of a broad principle that would exist even if we're not for various reasons going to end up or even desire to get to free trade is that is that a fair way to think about it and I'll link it back to Condi's, uh, yes i think that's uh
2: I think that's a great way to state it kevin and uh it's uh it's a uh, an approach that uh, is is fundamentally um, uh, supported by uh by some simple economics that uh, that says something kind of striking and that is not only um, you know not only can you do better uh, by uh, by creating some kind of commonwealth where you negotiate uh, you know, policies uh, with others rather than setting them unilaterally uh, but you will you would expect that that kind of negotiation will lead to freer trade it would not you would not expect countries to come together and actually agree to raise tariffs and restrict trade so that part of it is completely uh, general to the externality story that you should liberalize and it's just a question of how far you liberalize and that part, you know, if you think you should liberalize the free trade, you need to add a whole lot of extra structure to your argument, and that's where I think the, the WTO and that uh, doesn't need that because they don't uh, they don't rely on that. They're, they're just as you said, it's it's just a question of free or trade and how far countries want to go. Okay, so I
1: think we're going to leave it there, uh, Bob. It was really great to get your uh,
2: insights and perspective and. Mm-hmm to benefit from your deep expertise on this summit. So thanks so much. Okay, thanks a lot. really enjoyed it, and uh, good luck to you guys on your, on your podcast going forward.
0: This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.